Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. A few, a few weeks ago, we, were, uh, we looked at the beginning of John the Baptist's public ministry. Uh, we considered his calling, his ordination, and his message. And we saw that John was called to prepare the way of the Lord. He was ordained as a prophet of God, and his message was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Today, we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And more specifically, we're going to look at Jesus's ordination, his ordination to his public ministry. John's baptism of Jesus functions as an ordination ceremony. Uh, It's not only when Jesus was commissioned by God uh, to begin his public ministry, but it's when Jesus was declared to be the Christ, the Son of God, and the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's when Jesus was revealed to Israel as the anointed one. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see men beginning, uh, or we see men being anointed with oil as they are ordained to serve the Lord in different capacities, different offices. Um, this is most noticeable for those who serve in the office of priest and king. But there, we have at least one example of a prophet being anointed with oil. In 1 Kings 19, verse 16, the Lord instructed Elijah to anoint Elisha as a prophet to step into Elijah's shoes. Uh, But concerning the anointing of kings, Saul uh, was anointed by Samuel as the first king over Israel. 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 describes how Samuel poured a flask of oil onto, onto Saul's head. And from that time forward, Saul was understood to be the Lord's anointed. You may recall how David had the opportunity to harm Saul while Saul was sleeping. But David said, no, um, Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And there are several other examples given in scripture of kings being anointed with oil. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anointed David as the second king of Israel. In 1 Kings 139, Zadok the priest took a horn, uh, a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon as the third king in Israel. In 1 Kings 19.15, Hazael was anointed king. In 2 Kings 9 verses 1 through 6, Jehu was anointed king. And in 2 Kings 11.12, we read of Joash was anointed with king, as king. All of these incidents involved the pouring of oil onto the head of the man who's being anointed as king. And the scriptures tell us also that priests and high priests were anointed with oil. And perhaps the most memorable of these is Aaron's ordination. Aaron is memorable not only because he was the first to be ordained into the Levitical priesthood, but because Psalm 133 features his anointing as a simile for the pleasantness of brethren dwelling in unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down to the edge of his garments. 
And to grasp the, the richness of this simile, we need to understand that the anointing oil was not just any common oil. Uh, it was a special blend of precious oils reserved for consecrating people and things to the Lord. And when an anointing was performed, the oil was poured out generously, not sparingly, generously. And we see this in the psalmist's description of the precious oil flowing down Aaron's beard and onto his garments, even to the, the very edge of his garments. And the generous amount of oil that was used uh, during a, an anointing ceremony uh, is a visible sign of the abundant provision God gives to his servants. Uh, which is to say, whenever the Lord calls someone to serve him in some capacity, the Lord equips them with everything they need to be successful for, for that work. This generous outpouring of blessing and provision can be included in what Paul was writing about in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The point Paul is making is that God is not stingy with his blessings and provision to us. Uh, God goes well above and beyond. Uh, that's what the abundant overflowing oil represents when a man is being commissioned to work. Uh, so understand, brothers and sisters, God doesn't set you up for failure in your calling. Uh, he doesn't put you in difficult positions and not equip you to succeed. No, the, the Lord does exceedingly abundantly above all that we can think or ask. Uh, he might put you in difficult situations, but he's faithful to give you the resources you need to succeed in those difficult situations. So if he calls you to the office of motherhood, he'll equip you to succeed. If he calls you to be a husband, he'll equip you to succeed. If he calls you to be a businessman, he'll equip you to succeed. If he calls you to be a teacher, he'll equip you to succeed. If he calls you to be an artist or an evangelist or a programmer or an analyst or a salesman or an engineer, God will equip you to succeed. And this is not to say that you won't have challenges and difficulties. Uh, I'm not saying that you won't have setbacks from time to time. Often, we bring those challenges and setbacks upon ourselves because we are disobedient to the Word of God. Uh, we take shortcuts, or we think we can do something underhanded and get away with it, or we neglect the duties of our office, or we abuse the authority of our office. But when we're walking by faith in God's statutes and decrees, applying his truth and wisdom to the work that he has called us to do, you can be sure that any challenges and setbacks you experience are God's way of steering you in the direction that he wants you to go. He's providentially maneuvering you in a better direction with better outcomes and better blessings. So when you picture the overflow of oil uh, running down Aaron's beard and running down to the edge of his garments, remember that the Lord doesn't only equip kings and priests to be successful in their work. 
He equips every Christian in whatever his calling is for them. And his primary means for equipping you, brothers and sisters, is to give you his Holy Spirit. Uh, John 16, verse 13, says that the Holy Spirit is a teacher of truth. He teaches and guides you in all truth. John 16, verse 8, says the Spirit convicts people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So when your conscience is telling you that you're doing something wrong, that's part of God's exceedingly abundant provision to you. He's warning you not to proceed in the direction that you are intending to go. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 says that the Spirit distributes gifts to each person individually, and not everybody receives the same gift. So part of your ability to succeed in, in, in the calling that the Lord has placed upon you is to know what your giftings are. When you're doing the work that the Spirit has gifted you to do, then you will succeed. Whereas when you're doing the work that you are not gifted to do, you're going to struggle. And the struggle is God's way of redirecting you into a proper gifting. Uh, it's, one, it, it, it's, it's one of his exceedingly abundant blessings. Uh, don't fight against this. Uh, don't struggle against the struggle. Struggle through the struggle, attempting to discern the Lord's will and direction that he has for you in order that your work may line up uh, more consistently with the gifting that he has given to you. If you stubbornly refuse to consider that God might be redirecting you as you struggle through the work you are performing, then you will be resisting the will of God and you, you may prolong and extend the, the, the duration of your struggle. And Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 says that the Spirit produces fruit in your life. The Spirit produces fruit. Uh, what type of fruit, you ask? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those things that will help you succeed in the calling God has given to you? Absolutely. And so you need the Spirit. And God is generous in providing you the Spirit. And the reason I'm focusing your attention on the work and fruit of the Spirit uh, and, and what he produces in your life is because the anointing oil and the service, uh, you know, the ordination service, served as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It, it symbolized the guiding presence of the Spirit in the life and work of the person being ordained. And I mean, I'll, I'll just cite one example to demonstrate this point, and it comes from 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Do you see the symbolism in this verse? there's an unmistakable correlation between the anointing oil being poured onto David's head and the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David. So the anointing oil was a visible sign that the Holy Spirit had been given to the person being ordained to uh, a special calling. And the abundant quantity 
of the anointing oil was a visible sign that God gives his spirit liberally and plentifully to the person so that they will be equipped to succeed in that calling. And once again, God doesn't only do this for people who are being ordained as prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, He does this for all his children regardless of what our calling is. So if you are a Christian, then the Spirit has been given to you. And a full measure of the Spirit has been given to you. You didn't receive a partial dose. God doesn't give half a dose of the Spirit to this person and three quarters of a dose to this other person. No, you have the fullness of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. He's teaching you guiding you, convicting you, gifting you, and producing fruit in you so you can succeed in the work that the Lord has called you to. Jesus is being ordained in our sermon text. He's being publicly commissioned as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only in his case, It's not sacred anointing oil that is given as a visible sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Rather, it's a dove. Look at verse 13. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and and alighting upon him. This is God the Father anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter preached about this event, this incident, twice in the book of Acts. Uh, In Acts 10, verse 38, when Peter was preaching to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, he spoke of John's baptism. Peter, that is, spoke of John's baptism and then uh, proceeded to explain that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's what Peter said in Cornelius' house. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Peter's referring to the ordination of Jesus that's described in verse 13 of our sermon text. And the, the, the second time or the other time Peter preached about this is in Acts 2, which is his Pentecost sermon. Preaching to the Jews, Peter explained in verse 33 that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's a direct quote from Acts 2.33. Peter said that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, happened when the the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of of a dove. And then Peter proceeds to say in verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Do you see the point that Peter is making here? Are you able to follow the logical uh, progression? Peter is telling the Jews that when God the Father anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit, he was, God the Father was making a public declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's what was happening there. God the Father was making a public declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And when the Spirit descended upon Jesus, God declared Jesus to be the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, Messiah. And if if there was any confusion about whether this is what God was doing or not, 
That confusion was promptly cleared up when God the Father spoke audibly from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Look at verse uh, 17 of our sermon text. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, two things stand out from this announcement from God the Father. Uh, The first is the identity of Jesus. He's the son of God. The The Father explicitly declares, this is my son. So Jesus is being acknowledged and identified as the Son of God. And the second uh, notable thing is uh, the status of Jesus. The Father is well pleased with Jesus. He's well pleased with the life of Jesus. He's well pleased with the morality of Jesus. He's well pleased with the commitment of Jesus. He's well pleased with the direction Jesus is going. He's well pleased with the submission of Jesus to his Father's will. John the Baptist offers his own commentary on this exact event. Let's turn uh, to the first chapter in the Gospel of John so we can look at this together. John 1. In in verses 19 uh, through 28, John is having a conversation with some of the the Pharisees who had come out to ask who he is. They had heard about all this stuff that's going on at the Jordan River, so the Pharisees came out and asked who he is, and John responded to their inquiry by paraphrasing Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, John said that he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then in verses 26 and 27, uh, John explained to the Pharisees that he baptizes with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming, uh, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now look at verse 29. Verse 29 begins, the next day. All right, this is the day after John had the conversation with the Pharisees. We're not told who John is speaking to uh, in verse 29. Uh, it's possible that he was talking uh, to the same group of Pharisees that he had been speaking with the day before. It's possible that they came back out and talked to him and, and this is him addressing them a second time. But more likely, John is talking to a group of people who witnessed the conversation he had the previous day with the Pharisees and they're back again the second day to learn from, more from John. In other words, they're, they're disciples of John. They're people who are coming re- re- repetitively to John. Uh, and, and so in verse 29, John is talking uh, presumably to these disciples, potentially to those Pharisees. And, and he says, he see, John sees Jesus approaching, walking toward John and the people he's speaking to. And so John sees Jesus and he says to the people who are with him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. That that was the conversation he had the previous day. And so he's saying to these people, ah, you see that guy right there? That's the one I was talking about yesterday when I said, you know, there's one that comes before me. Verse 31, I did not know him, John says, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. Then in verse 32, John tells what happened when he baptized Jesus. 
And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now let me call your attention to a couple of things that John says here. Notice that he explains the reason God sent him to baptize with water. This might surprise you. The reason might surprise you. You might think that God sent John to baptize with water so that repentant sinners could participate in the ceremonial cleansings described in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 and Numbers 19. And while this is something that John's baptism did accomplish, that being those ceremonial cleansings, John is saying that that wasn't the primary reason God sent him to baptize. The primary reason was to reveal the Son of God to Israel. The primary reason was to reveal the identity of the one who will come after John who baptizes with the Holy Spirit in fire. Look again at verse 31. Referring to Jesus, John says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So why did John baptize with water? To reveal to Israel that Jesus is the son of God. And you ask, how did baptizing with water reveal to Israel that Jesus is the son of God? Well, John explains this in verses 32 and 33. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained on him, Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remain on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What John is making crystal clear is that the primary reason God sent him to baptize with water was to reveal to Israel who it is that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus was walking toward John, John points to Jesus and says in verse 34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now it's difficult to understand what John is describing about the reason, uh, I should say it's not difficult to, just, to, to understand what John is saying about the reason why he, he was sent to baptize. Right? It's actually very clear and easy for us to understand. God told John to baptize people with water and when he sees a spirit descend upon and remain upon a particular person, individual, that's the Messiah. That's the Son of God. That's the one who will come after John and baptize with the Holy Spirit. We get that. Not difficult to comprehend. The part that confuses a lot of us is when John says, I did not know him. In fact, he says it twice, once in verse 31 and once in verse 33. We read this and we ask ourselves, how could John not have known Jesus? After all, they were relatives. Mary was related to Elizabeth, which means Jesus and John were second cousins. So you would think that they would have known each other while they were growing up. And given the miraculous circumstances of, of Jesus' and John's conception, how both of them were conceived, you would think that John's parents 
would have told him about the unique person and nature of Jesus. After all, it appears from the first chapter of Luke that Zacharias and Elizabeth both understood Mary's baby was the Messiah. Didn't they teach this to John while he was growing up? Didn't they explain to him, you're going to grow up, young John. You're going to grow up to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. You're going to declare, make straight the path of the Lord. And you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And the identity of the person you're going to reveal to Israel is your second cousin, Jesus. You would think that John would have been taught this. And that thought seems to be validated in our sermon text in Matthew 3. Verse 14 says that John actually tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. John said, oh no, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Why would John say such a thing unless he knew who Jesus was? He obviously had a lot of respect for Jesus. So how could John say that he didn't know him? The solution to this question is really not that difficult. John knew Jesus, and he had a lot of respect for Jesus. As has already been stated, this is evident from verse 14 of our sermon text. When John says uh, in John 1, 31 and 33, I did not know him, he's referring to knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. Or more specifically, when he's saying, I did not know him, the, the pronoun him points to the Messiah, not Jesus. I did not know who the Messiah was. I knew this guy named Jesus, but I didn't know who the Messiah was, John is saying. John is saying that he didn't know Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Apparently, Zacharias and Elizabeth didn't tell John that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, One possible explanation is that Zacharias and Elizabeth passed away before John became old enough to learn this from his parents. And this is not a stretch. This is not, you know, grasping at straws to try to, you know, reconcile some seemingly contradiction in the scriptures. No, this is actually quite reasonable because Luke 1 verse 7 indicates that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both well advanced in years before John was even conceived. Given the life expectancy in those days, They both could have passed away uh, when John was just a toddler or a young boy. Now, whether this is the case or there's some other explanation, if we don't assume that John already knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the problem goes away. It's not an issue at all. When John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized, that was because he had a lot of respect for Jesus. He saw that Jesus had moral integrity. He knew that Jesus was a man of his word. And he respected how Jesus understood the scriptures. We saw that even when, Je- when Jesus was 12 years old. Imagine what he's like at 30 years old in terms of his biblical knowledge and understanding. But when John said that he didn't know who Jesus was until he saw the spirit descend upon him, he's referring to knowing that Jesus was the Messiah. John is saying that he didn't realize his second cousin is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But now that he's witnessed the Spirit descend upon Jesus, he's testifying that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. 
There's a difference between believing that Jesus is a respectable person and believing that, that he's a son of God. And that difference is the difference between heaven and hell. Many people say they respect Jesus, but they don't believe that he's the son of God. Respect, therefore, is not the same thing as faith. Sometimes it respect masquerades as saving faith. Sometimes it appears to be saving faith, but having respect for Jesus is not the same thing as having saving faith in Jesus. To help in differentiating between the two, understand that saving faith uh, is characterized by three key attributes. The first is knowledge knowledge of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And this includes knowing the nature of God, uh, knowing the sinfulness of humanity, knowing the atoning work of Jesus Christ, just to name a few of those key critical doctrines that we must know. Uh, We come to know these things through God's self-revelation in the scriptures. The second attribute of saving faith is assent or agreement, it's a, it's a more modern word. Assent means you believe the truth of the things that you've come to know from the scriptures. And so assent builds on knowledge. You begin with knowledge, and then assent is a second component. It said, I agree with, I uh, believe that those things, that knowledge which I've come to learn is true. So it's a conviction that the things God has revealed to you in his word are not just fanciful tales of an ancient culture. They're not myths that have been passed down from generation to generation, but they're truths which are relevant and necessary for one's own life and salvation. And so that's the second attribute of saving faith. The third attribute is trust. Trust builds upon and goes beyond knowledge and assent. Whereas knowledge is a set of historical facts about Jesus, and assent believes that those facts are true, trust is a personal reliance upon Jesus. It's a wholesale commitment to Jesus. It's placing your confidence in Jesus and his atoning work. It's depending upon God's grace and the firm conviction that everything Jesus did to redeem sinners, he did specifically for me or for you. That that would be your conviction, that he did this specifically for you. Many people possess the first two attributes of saving faith, but not the third. They have knowledge of the gospel. They have knowledge of Jesus Christ. They assent that the knowledge that they know is true, but they don't trust that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave specifically to redeem themselves, them. Ask such a person, do you know the scriptures teach that Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience and died a substitutionary death? And they'll say, yes, I know that. Then ask, do you believe these things are true? And they'll say, yeah, I do. But then ask, are you trusting that these truths are specifically applicable to you? That you have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that he earned through his obedient life. And that your actual sins were atoned for while he hung upon the cross, achieving that substitutionary atonement described in the scriptures. 
and the person who respects Jesus but does not have saving faith in Jesus will answer no. If they're really being honest, they'll say something like, I think Jesus did those things for other people, but not for me. Such a person is not far from the kingdom of God. Are you familiar with that phrase? In Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, a scribe asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And a short theological discussion followed between Jesus and the scribe. Uh, Jesus and the scribe discussed theology. Um, And the scribe commended Jesus for the answer he gave to the question that was first posed. Uh, And then the scribe went on to add uh, his own assertion that there is only one God and there is no other but he. And Mark 12, 34 says what happened next. Now when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now to say that somebody is not far from the kingdom of of God means that they have knowledge and assent of kingdom truths, but they're not trusting in those truths. The scribe that Jesus was conversing with could carry on a good theological discussion, but it was all coming from his head and not his heart. The scribe was talking about the truth, but he wasn't walking in the truth. So Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But don't mistake this to be a compliment. Jesus was was not saying, good job, keep it up. You're on a good trajectory. I, I like what you're doing. No, the terrible reality about the person who's not far from the kingdom of God is that this person is not in the kingdom of God. Rather, they are outside the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard the saying, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. In the opening game of the 2020 college football season, Rice University attempted a 45-yard game-winning field goal during overtime. The kick had the distance, but the ball hit the right upright of the goalpost, bounced off the right upright, hit the horizontal cross member, bounced up to the left upright, hit the left upright, deflected back, hit the horizontal goalpost a, a second time, and then bounced in front of the goalpost. It was a quadruple doink. It was so close to going through the goalpost, but it counted as a miss. If you get close when you throw a hand grenade, that counts. If you get close when you pitch a horseshoe, that counts. But when you're trying to kick a ball through the uprights, it doesn't matter how close you get. If it doesn't go through, then it doesn't count. And how much more severe are the consequences when a person is outside the kingdom of God? It doesn't matter how close you are to the kingdom of God. If you're not inside the kingdom, then that means you're outside the kingdom. And Jesus warned that everybody outside the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Only those who know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and assent that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and trust that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the the living God, are inside the kingdom. John's baptism 
is the event where Jesus was revealed as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know this? Do you assent to this? And are you trusting that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? Are you trusting that he lived and died specifically for you? That you have personally been given the righteousness that he earned through his obedient life and that your actual sins, your actual sins, were atoned for through his substitutionary death? If so, then this is evidence that you are inside the kingdom of God. But if not then this is evidence that you're outside the kingdom of God. You might be close to the kingdom of God. In fact, the very you know, fact that you're here today, growing in your knowledge about Christ, growing in your respect for Christ, suggests that you are close to the kingdom of God. But if you're not trusting that Jesus lived and died specifically for you, that his righteousness has been imputed specifically to you, and that your actual sins have been atoned for by him, then you're outside the kingdom of God. What you lack is trust. You have knowledge, you have assent, but you lack trust. You don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God who is the Messiah, the Christ. And if this describes you, then I plead with you, to call upon the Lord to be merciful to you. Pray to him. Ask him to be merciful. Ask him to help your unbelief. Ask him to give you a heart that trusts in Jesus Christ. Ask him to give you his spirit to guide you and equip you with saving faith. For Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.